The comments and views expressed on The Moore Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The Moore Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. Hello and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the Mindscape magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined by my guest, Dr. Robert Schock. Now, Robert has a PhD in geology and geophysics from Yale, and has been working in Egypt, focusing on the Great Sphinx and Pyramid since 1990. He is a full-time faculty member at the College of General Studies of Boston University, where he has taught a variety of science courses since 1984. Based on his geological studies, Robert has determined that the Sphinx origins go back to pre-dynasty times, thousands of years older than previously thought. In recent years, Dr. Robert Schock has expanded his research to encompass pyramids and associated structures around the world. Dr. Robert Schock, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I um, am glad to be here. Now, uh, tell me about your work in sort of you know the date and the culture of uh, ancient civilizations, and how you first got interested in in that. Well, essentially, in a nutshell, my work over the last twenty years, really more than twenty years at this point, has been looking at when did civilization, when did culture, in a sophisticated sense, really originate. And this is something I've been interested in as long as I can remember when it comes right down to it. Um, Even as a small child, I was interested in ancient cultures, ancient civilizations. The predominant story, the sort of traditional story that I learned as a child, I learned in college, was that ancient civilization, civilizations, we know it really started with the ancient Egyptians, with the ancient Sumerians, Uh, in what's known as the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East and North Africa, about 3,000, 3,500 B.C., before the Common Era. And this is really the scenario that I've been questioning and pushing civilization back further in my own research now for the last 20 years. I became directly involved with this, with the Great Sphinx, with ancient Egypt in the late 1980s after I had gotten my Ph.D. in geology and geophysics, after I had become a tenured faculty member at Boston University, by being introduced to a man named John Anthony West, whom probably many listeners and viewers know of. He has done a lot of work in Egypt. He's what he calls an independent Egyptologist. He had been studying earlier Egyptologists, going back to the 19th century, early 20th century, a philosopher named Choir de Lubitsch. So a number of people had actually suggested that the Egyptian Sphinx in particular, and at least the origins of Egyptian civilization, had gone back much further in time. This notion dropped out of the mainstream dropped out of sort of popularity in the middle to late 20th century when the dogma really crystallized that civilization began at earliest about 3,500 B.C. And it's been that notion that I've been questioning, looking at ever since, and really my data 
many lines of evidence says that no, in fact, civilization begins much, much earlier. At this point, I would say that we have clear evidence of genuine, sophisticated civilization as far back as the end of the last ice age, about 12,000 years ago. But what difference does that make to us now, you know, to know that civilization began, uh, uh, you know, thousands of years prior to when we know it? I mean, what difference does that make in our lives now? Well, it questions what difference it really makes, I think, is that it questions our whole concept of history. But one could say, well, that's sort of trivial. Who cares other than historians? But I think what's more important, more interesting, is that we have this very early civilization or civilizations at the end of the last ice age, maybe even going further back because we only know of them at that point. They essentially disappear, disappear very abruptly. This is one of the big issues. And Essentially, one could say we went into a dark age for thousands of years. Something was going on that was very sophisticated. We'll call it high, I would call it high civilization. It disappears. It's wiped out, I believe, and I'm coming at this as a geologist, by natural catastrophes. In fact, I'm developing a theory now that ties it in with solar outbursts, uh, solar flares, that type of thing, and we can get into that more if you'd like. But they are absolutely wiped out. They um, uh, get thrown back into a dark age, if we would. They, um, we really have very little evidence for them, and that's been part of the problem for archaeologists and historians. And then civilization seems to reemerge about 5,000, 5,500 years ago. So I think there are really important lessons here that we're not... Um, that we're actually very vulnerable. We're not uh, what many people think of us as, you know, we're the height of evolution, we're the best that ever could be, we're invulnerable. In fact, no, it's not the case at all. Things have come before us, we need to learn lessons from that. And in particular, from a geologist's point of view, I'm a geologist and geophysicist, from an astrophysics point of view, we seem to be in a situation that... Um, may be very similar to what wiped out those early uh, civilizations over 10,000 years ago. Right. Well, I mean, to, to wipe out a civilization as your suggestion, um, this must have been some sort of awesome force to do that. I mean, it, you know, there's, there's not much remains, is there, really? No, there isn't. Um, and really... Right now, my working hypothesis, when I say working hypothesis, I'm talking as a scientist. I think this is not just a flight of fancy. There's a lot of evidence that's accumulating that I'm working on and other people are working on, is that something incredibly awesome, incredibly catastrophic happened at the end of the last ice age, which really caused major climatic changes, major earth changes, and also took out if I could put it that way, the um, early civilizations of that time period. And so okay. we're really talking, uh, uh, you know, major catastrophic events. And I believe at this point that a lot of evidence, in fact, all the most compelling evidence really po points to the sun. And the sun went through a period of instability, major solar outbursts, which 
both caused the end of the last ice age, a very dramatic warming over a period of just a couple of years. We now know that from ice cores. Um, and also essentially incinerated the surface of the Earth, caused a lot of effect effects, um, caused all kinds of earthquake damage, volcanic eruptions. So we could get into all those details. So, so when yeah, you talk about major happening, absolutely. So when you talk about solar flares, I mean, you know, how awesome, uh, uh, you know, a, a sort of devastation would would this have been? I mean, how how devastating would the solar flare have been to cause absolute, you know, e extinction on the planet almost? Oh, yeah, uh, incredibly devastating. Uh, there were probably, you know, again, I don't know how much background people have in such things, but we have different aspects of a solar eruption. You have coronal mass ejections, which are essentially huge bursts of plasma, ionized particles coming from the sun, so physically hitting the Earth. You have what are known as solar proton events, which can cause incredible uh, devastation, especially to living forms by, ra by raising radiation levels on the surface of the Earth. Uh, from a physical point of view, you, I believe that they literally saw what would seem like huge lightning bolts in the sky, huge uh, electrical discharges as the uh, plasma, as the coronal mass ejection interacts with the magnetosphere of the Earth. Um, orders of magnitude, I mean hundreds, probably thousands of times anything that has been experienced um, in any kind of historical times. And when I say historical times, the last major, from a historical point of view, coronal mass ejection, really, you know, decent-sized one, small from a geologic perspective, but decent-sized one, we'll put it that way, that hit the Earth was in 1859. Some people may be aware of the Carrington event, 1859. It literally fried telegraph lines at the time. It caused aurora at very low latitudes where you don't normally see them. People talked about seeing all kinds of figures, all kinds of um, you know things in the sky, but it caused really relatively little damage. First off, because it was relatively small, compared to anything that would have happened at the end of the last ice age. Secondly, we were not very sophisticated technologically in 1859. We didn't have all the electronic infrastructure that we have now. At most, you know, basically all it was was telegraph lines, and those telegraph lines were literally fried. Some telegraph stations were set on fire because of it, the currents that were induced in them. If we have a Carrington event today or tomorrow in the present time, it would uh, literally wipe out a lot of electronics communication systems. It would cause massive blackouts by affecting the grid system. It would cause satellites to um, stop working, that type of thing. We have just a Carrington-level event or even smaller would have incredible ramifications for modern civilization. And what I believe the evidence indicates is that at the end of the last ice age, we had things happening orders of magnitude larger than Carrington event. So you would have literally had discharges, electrical discharges hitting the surface of the earth, setting fires, uh, essentially melting very, very quickly ice caps. You know, when you release a couple of miles of ice, you know, thickness of ice from the surface of the earth, that causes other disruptions. It 
causes a release of that tremendous pressure. We see this in Iceland to this day as ice caps are melting just because of global warming. It causes increase in volcanic activity. It causes increase in earthquake activity. So think of this happening at the end of the last ice age. Uh, it would cause all kinds of uh, disruption. Right. It would cause it would cause huge deluges, flooding. You know, rain from the sky. We have stories around the world. This is well known of uh, you know some kind of deluge. I mean, well, that, well, that's what Christian Bible. That's, that's what I was going to say to you, um, uh, Robert. Was you know, is there any text that sort of you know uh, gives any clues that there that there was a, a, a great uh, you know change that took place on Earth, and um, you know man. Mankind survived it as such. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely. I'm a geologist, so I've got to say that I come first from a physical evidence point of view. So I'm first interested in looking at things like ice cores, and a lot of this is without going to a bunch of technical details right this second. We can, if you like, looking at ice cores, looking at sediment cores, looking at isotope ratios, which are proxies. They basically record levels of solar activity, that type of thing. So, you know, there's a lot of hard evidence for this, and a lot of geological evidence. But when you start looking at, for instance, the mythology, and I use that term gingerly because I don't believe that the myths are just fairy tales, you know, just made-up stories. When you look at the mythologies, you look at the legends around the world, you have very similar themes of things happening in the sky, of uh, flooding, deluges, uh, you know, of what I see, and literally in some cases descriptions of things happening in the sky in the sense of a lot of the myths will talk about armies clashing, people clashing, figures in the sky, something that's been determined and a lot of this work goes to, um, a lot of credit goes to a, a person named Dr. Anthony Perrot, who works at Los Alamos. He's a plasma physicist, has become very interested in this, and he has been working on modeling what happens when you have a major solar outburst. You have major discharges into the atmosphere of our planet, and uh, solar discharge, for instance, interacting with magnetos magnetosphere, what kind of phenomena you, phenomena you would literally see in the skies. Yeah. And you compare that to the myths, and they line up perfectly. The other thing that we have, and Perrot has done a lot of work on this, Dr. Perrot, is looking at petroglyphs around the world. And you have these very ancient petroglyphs that go back to approximately the end of the last ice age, and they record very strange-looking humanoid-type figures, but they're not quite human. They have, like, extra arms. They have little discs where they really shouldn't occur. And you see these consistently around the world as if, one people, one, some people would say, well, they're just imagining the same thing, but why are they imagining the same weird thing? And he's modeled this and was um, really astounded to see, well, in fact, this fits very precisely what you would see as what he calls plasma columns in the sky. Uh, just one other thing to mention while it's on my mind, you have myths 
of people going underground and protecting themselves underground from something that's happening horrible above. Well, in fact, the best way to survive, maybe the only way to survive these types of events would be to go into caves, would be to go underground. And you have both the uh, uh, legends and mythologies about that. We also have, for instance, um, a lot of recent work that many Neolithic sites, many sites that are associated with the end of the last ice age and the millennia right after that have underground tunnels, underground caves associated with them, and people have always asked why. And then you think of some of the classic areas like Cappadocia and Turkey where you know, you've got these um, traditions of uh, you know, living in caves, living underground, literally living in cities. Some of those, I think, are not actually that old, but they may be carrying on a tradition, you know, preparing, if you would, because they knew what came before, what had their ancestors had seen. Uh, it's, it's just so interesting. I mean, you know, uh, well, that, then that, let's move into your research into uh, Egypt. Now, um, obviously, you've been heavily involved with the, with the Sphinx in Egypt and the, the Great Pyramids. Right. Um, obviously, you know, your research, as from one of the books that I've read on yourself, um, you believe that uh, the pyramids do indeed date back to, uh, you know, the prior to the Ice Age. Um, is this right? Um, well, it, okay, this, this is a complex question, the dating of the pyramids, the Ice Age, that type of thing. So it, it gets a little more complicated because the pyramids that we see today in Egypt, let's just focus on the Giza pyramids, on the Giza plateau. You've got the three major pyramids. Everyone's aware of the Great Pyramid. Then you've got the second pyramid, which is almost the same size as the Great Pyramid. Then you've got the third pyramid, um, sometimes called the Menkara Pyramid, named after pharaohs of the fourth dynasty, Khufu. Khafre and Menkar, and you have the Sphinx sitting east of the second pyramid. I started my work on the Sphinx. It's very clear to me that the Sphinx is thousands of years older than the traditional attribution of 2500 BC. Where I began with that is realizing that the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara Desert. The Sahara Desert has been around for at least the last 5,000 years. You've got water erosion, water precipitation, weathering. This is textbook geology material on the Sphinx, which is not compatible. It's rain weathering, which is not compatible with the Sahara Desert. So immediately that said to me, the Sphinx must be older if it carries this type of weathering on it. And there's a lot of other data, and I did subsurface data and other analysis, but the bottom line is that Sphinx has to be thousands of years older. So that's where I started. Um, initially, I felt, you know, I wanted to try to make it as young as possible. I'm an academic. I'm a, I'm a you know, full-fledged academic. I still teach in a university. I have a Ph.D. from Yale, et cetera. I'm not... Um, uh, uh, you know, really, you know, I, I come from a, a strict academic background. Sure. But I also feel I have to deal with the data. You can't just dismiss data, and you have to go with the implications. So the Sphinx is much older. At this point, I'm willing to push it back, frankly, back to the end of the last ice age, potentially, and we can get to why in a few minutes, if you like. Now, the pyramids. If you look at the pyramids on the plateau, 
I believe that there's lots of evidence that the pyramids as we see them today are, in fact, Fourth Dynasty Egyptian pyramids. So Fourth Dynasty, about 25, 2600, so let's say 24 to 2600 BC, before the Common Era. That being said, I believe that the sites of the pyramids, the interiors of the pyramids, what we could call the core pyramids, actually go back thousands of years earlier. Am I making sense? Okay, uh, so so what we're saying here so is that the actual, uh, you know, deep within the pyramids, the, the, uh, the these this this is actually old, older, or a lot older than what we see exactly. on the outside. Exactly, exactly. So let me explain a little further. Going back to the Sphinx, for instance, everyone knows what the Sphinx looks like. It has the head of a human on it. That head is clearly a dynastic head. I have no doubt about that. That head is maybe 26, 2800 BC or so. That head has been recarved. Whatever the original head of the Sphinx was, we don't know. So when I say the Sphinx is thousands of years older, well, the head is dynastic because they took an older structure, they recarved the head because it had been all eroded and you know messed up, should we say? And, and what would you cause that? Er what caused that erosion? Would you say? Oh, oh the, for the head? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I think it was uh, it was heavily eroded by um, precipitation, by rain that was falling on a much earlier statue, and so you still see that erosion on the body of the Sphinx, that very ancient erosion, and the body of the Sphinx is still somewhat intact and goes, you know, back thousands of years. The head that's now on it was recarved. It would have had a larger head, a bigger head that was badly eroded, and I believe the dynastic Egyptians then recarved the head. The body they left intact, although they did use multiple repair blocks to try to fill in a lot of the erosion. So, you know, you have a complex situation. To use the analogy for, say, a Europe, in Europe, you have cathedrals. Or maybe you, Say you have a cathedral that's 1,000 years old. That doesn't preclude, in fact, in many cases it means that there are more modern repairs to it, that type of thing. Um, the other thing about the Sphinx is that the body itself keeps, has maintained a lot of the very ancient features going back thousands of years earlier because the Sphinx sits in what's known as the Sphinx ditch or Sphinx enclosure with the coming of the arid regime, with the coming of the sand and the desert, the Sahara Desert climatically about 5,000 years ago the body of the Sphinx actually gets covered with sand. And from a geologic point of view, the sand protects it. So it's very fortunate for me as a geologist that a lot of the important features for dating the original Sphinx were actually have been protected since dynastic times because it fills in with sand on a periodic basis. So let me ask you something, just before we move on here, then. Yeah. Just to sum yeah, this up. Again, I'm trying to summarize a lot of complex yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very complex subject. Um, so what we're saying, uh, we started this conversation off with corona ejections from the sun, which could have caused mm -hmm. in the past, um, you know, prior to the ice age, a mass extinction mm -hmm. on a very, civ uh, you know, uh, you know, civilized uh, society at the time. Maybe even more mm -hmm. civilized than what we have, uh, technology-wise, right. especially. And what we're saying here is that the remnants of previous ancient civilizations are there to see, for example, the pyramids. 
and uh, this mass extinction which happened uh, well 10,000 years ago pro- probably with the ice age yeah about about we can just for crude terms about 10 to about 10, yeah yeah 10,000 years ago um uh, then uh, a civilization came back again and rebuilt over what would have been then the pyramids am i right here and they they yes 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 yeah um let me let me elaborate there so if you're looking at the giza plateau what i believe the dynastic egyptians let's call them the dynastic egyptians with the early rise of dynastic egypt about 3000 to 2500 bc just to put numbers on for people to think about uh they came to the giza plateau there were already much more ancient structures there, namely the Sphinx, what we now call the Sphinx, what we now call the Three Pyramids. They weren't the pyramids that we see now. There were, they were structures there that they essentially built over, if you would. That's my interpretation, incorporated um, into what you now see. Now, how pyramidal they were, we could argue about. They may have been pretty much like pyramids, and they they repaired them, that type of thing. Um, The Sphinx, I'm very clear that the Sphinx was there. The head was probably badly eroded and had to be recarved, repaired. There's something known as the Sphinx Temple that sits absolutely in front of the Sphinx, east of the paws of the Sphinx. That is you can see to this day, when I, at least when I look at it carefully, you can see how it's made out of these huge megalithic blocks that were resurfaced, refaced, and covered over with granite in the 4th Dynasty, uh, again about 2500 B.C. So essentially they were in, taking an inheritance, something that, by my interpretation, was much older by thousands of years, had apparently, I believe, been abandoned for some time. They're taking this there now, using it themselves, reincorporated into their plan for the Giza Plateau, um, and essentially we could call it refurbishing, reusing it, putting it, you know, re- redoing it. Okay, okay, but obviously without, without any advanced uh, technology, would you say? No, I don't. I mean, when you look at ancient Egypt, they're not that unadvanced themselves. Um, this is a whole nother question, how even the ancient Egyptians were doing what they were doing. Now, the earlier civilization, if we could use that term, was clearly using some kind of technology to move huge blocks, to carve huge stone. Why do, um, why do you say that for, though? Why do you say that for, though? Is that because we couldn't make them... Even even today with today's technology, or oh, I, I'm no no. I don't want to say now. I have to be careful here. I'm when I I'm, I didn't necessarily. I okay. Advanced technology. We can argue what advanced technology is, but when you look at the Sphinx Temple, for instance, there are multi multi ton limestone blocks, and you know we're talking in the realm of tens of tons to arguably maybe 50 tons or more for some of those blocks in their original state when they carved out the body of the sphinx so this is pre-dynastic times they the head of the sphinx only sits above the ground level so only the head sits above the ground level to carve the body they had to carve down into the bedrock 
there's a couple of ways you could do that. You could just sort of chip the rock out, like, you know, with um, uh, pickaxes, that type of thing, you know, crumble it, yeah. shovel it out. That would be an easy way. So this is the distinction I'm making. They didn't do it the easy way. They actually carved out blocks that were, in most cases, tens of tons. They carved them out as they were, you know, freeing up the body of the Sphinx. They carved out these huge blocks. They moved them east of the Sphinx to reassemble them as the Sphinx temple. Now, whether they were doing this with you know, relatively primitive hand tools and just putting incredible amounts of energy into it. One could argue that, whether they had some more advanced technology, one could argue that. Whatever they were doing was incredible, in my opinion, on the face of it, to carve out such large blocks, to move such large blocks, to put them back together with such incredible tolerances when you look at these structures, you know, the tolerances between the blocks, to move these huge blocks around in very small, confined spaces. It gets to be a real problem because it's one thing to say, well, you take hundreds of people and you can move around a 20-ton block. Yes, that's true, but how do you fit in hundreds of people when you have so small a space to actually move? Um, so, I mean, it, 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 I, you know, there has been, in my opinion, no good answer as to how they were constructing but but why 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 then robert have other scholars um gone along with with the uh, with the viewpoint that you know it was just mass labor well i would say that other scholars i mean i know i could name names but i'm not going to right now uh there's there's both uh in some cases a laziness of thinking an unwilling to um Buck Convention. I mean, that's really the conventional point of view. There have been demonstrations or people have tried to reconstruct how they built the pyramids, for instance, even using small blocks, you know, just a couple of tons. And uh, sometimes it's done and you'll, you know, they won't show off camera when they're doing, say, a Nova special, something like that, how how difficult it really is. Um, you know, the, here we're really talking a psychology of um, uh, sort of conventional thinking and unwillingness to uh, acknowledge when there's a real problem. Well, well, I guess, I guess there was a time when we thought the world was flat. So, well, that, that that's almost a yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a time when we thought a lot of different things, uh, and you know, it's very hard to. Go against the paradigm. That's really what I want to say. Well, don't you? Fi don't you? You must find. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say. Right now, we have in ancient history, and uh, you know, the study of ancient history and the study of archaeology, certain reigning paradigms, and uh, they uh, really want to. Um, certain people have a lot of vested interest in those reigning paradigms, and it gets into a bigger picture. So. Let me point this out, and people don't often acknowledge this. I think it has to do with a larger paradigm that we are the best that there ever has been, that our civilization is the epitome of civilizations, that it's been a one-way progress. We've been getting better and better and better and better. There's no way some people, and I know this from talking to them, I know from attending many conferences and having 
we'll call it discussions with other academics, that they can't accept at the most fundamental level that maybe people back thousands of years ago or even tens of thousands of years ago could have done something that we can't do today, could have in any way had some knowledge that we don't have today, whether it's philosophical or technological. They have a very strong vested interest that they must have been doing everything in a very primitive way. They must have been thinking in a very primitive way. And this gets back to one of the points that I was trying to make before. I don't think that's the case. I think there have been sort of ebbs and flows if I want to go back to classical scholars like Plato, the concept of cycles that we go through different cycles that, you know, he, throughout ancient mythologies and legends, for instance, we have the concept of a golden age, that there was a golden age and that we devolved from that and that, you know, we will go back into, you know, a rise, if you want to put it that way. Again, yeah. But but it surprises me. It, it surprises me how other scholars um, can be so close-minded. I mean, you know, it's okay to have a differing opinion, uh, but to say it's just their opinion, and you know, they're not prepared to sort of open their mind to the fact that uh, you know your research shows uh, something different. Um, I mean, how do you handle that? <laughs> how do I handle it? I've learned. I've learned to. Um, try to just deal with it. I, to be honest with you, I am, have been very surprised about it too. I mean, the last 25 years have been an incredible learning experience as to how close-minded members, uh, certain members of the academic community can be, how strong vested interests are, how much um, their worldviews, their research, their what they've committed themselves to for decades is tied up with their own ego. I mean, but you see this. You see this in lots of cases. Um, you you see this in um, you know history of science. It's I, I think I think you hit the I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, uh, ego has a, a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, how, look at what happened to Galileo. And I'm not comparing myself to Galileo, but you know, you have a lot of close, open, closed cases like that. Like yeah. Copernicus or. Um, you know this uh, quantum mechanics at the early you know stages people are people scientists aren't you know some kind of objective you know open to the truth type of <laughs> i mean some of us try to be but <laughs> yes of course of course a lot of personality and ego involved i mean do, do you do you I mean, find yourself questioning your work sometimes oh i question my work all the time Absolutely, absolutely, and I, 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 I'll tell you, I went through a phase, I guess it was in the 90s, and I said, oh, am I absolutely crazy and delusional, and I really double-checked and triple-checked and talked to people. One thing that I think gives me advantage, and I'll, t I'll tell a quick story here, because I think it's apropos to what we're talking about, when I first presented to the Geological Society of America my research in what's now known as the redating of the Great Sphinx by, based on my research. I was about to present it, you know, hundreds of geologists, big international conferences, Geological Society of America, but it was really a, a huge international conference from, you know, people all around the world. And I'm getting ready to present it. I show 
the data and my analysis to a friend of mine who was, and it still is, a very good geologist, a very good stratigrapher. He, um, you know, real critical eye. He's going to tell me exactly how, what he thinks, that type of thing. So I'm showing it to him. I'm about to go on in the next hour. And he starts laughing hilariously. And I was totally, for a moment, totally freaked out. I thought I would made some horrible, horrible mistake. And no, he said, not at all. It's just so simple. It's so straightforward. This is, you know, not very sophisticated geology. And But, you know, what's wrong with the Egyptologists? What's wrong with the historians? Why haven't they seen this before? And it really comes in some cases to this huge divide between physical scientists, people like myself, geologists and historians, and viewing the world very differently, looking at evidence differently, uh, lack of evidence in some cases, I think, frankly, for the historical point of view, whereas, as I said, I'm a geologist. I'm going to go with physical evidence first. It's nice if the mythology and the legends fit in with that. If it doesn't, I'm going to look at that because I think all the lines of evidence ultimately should be compatible. Um, but but there, there are just a lot of issues involved here. You know, we could even call it political issues. Absolutely. So, just so I've got it right for in my mind, then uh, before the uh, the Great Ice Age, um, what you're saying is that the the pyramid, the, well, the Sphinx that start with that, um, you know, would have been surrounded by uh, by a forest. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. You well, a forest or temperate region. It's it's. Um, really, what we have in North Africa is a number of different climatic regimes. The climate was changing back and forth from arid to not so arid to more temperate, that type of thing. It, w- it was really varying. But, but, nothing, uh, no, no, nothing, but nothing as big as the, the great climatic change on the Ice Age? Uh, no, the, the climatic change at the end of the last Ice Age was really the major, major change. Um, and then since the Ice Age, you've had basically a variation between more pluvial, is the term I would use, moisture, more moisture, more rain, to more arid. So it sort of goes back and forth geologically, you know, a period of thousands of years. Sure, sure. And, and yeah, just so, so, you, so it, it's, 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 a, it's a more complex situation than simply saying, oh, it was Sahara until you know, going back 5,000 years, then it was just forest. It actually is a bit more complicated than that, is all I'm trying to say. Okay, absolutely. And uh, yeah. uh, with with the Sphinx, I mean, uh, you said there that obviously through corrosion, um, you, that, you know, the head has actually ch- been, been changed by man. Um, but yeah. what, what, originally, what originally was the head then? I suspect it was a lion. I mean, I don't know, because we don't, really don't know. It doesn't exist anymore, and it's been totally, um, you know, chipped away and <laughs> turned into a human head. But I suspect it was a lion. I suspect that it's a lion. The Sphinx actually faces, um, if you push it back to the end of the last Ice Age, faces Leo, the constellation. I was very dubious about talking about astronomical and astrophysical and astrological um, markers like that when I first got into this business a quarter century ago, but there's more and more evidence. There's lots of evidence now that a lot of our um, astronomy slash astrology, because they really went together, you know, until the time of 
Galileo and post-Galileo. Astronomers and astrologers were essentially one and the same thing. A lot of our constellations that we recognize, like Leo, like Taurus, like Orion, go back well into the last ice age. There's evidence that Orion was recognized 30,000 years ago. Um, so I suspect that we're talking Leo, we're talking the lion, we're talking a full-fledged lion that was facing its own constellation back then. It would have had a full, I think, male lion head, which would be very large, would have incorporate plenty of stone, should we say, that even when it was eroded down, badly damaged, there's still enough stone left that could be carved into the head we currently see. In in incredible. So that, that's my speculation. I also wanted to mention um, very quickly, if I could, because I think it's a really important point. When I first got into this with the age of the Sphinx and talking about earlier civilizations, one of the things that was said to me, this is early 1990s, is if the Sphinx is that old, if you're right about this very early civilization, there has to be evidence elsewhere. There has to be other evidence. You know, they were all into this business of where's the corroborating evidence, where's the context, where's any other evidence of a early sophisticated civilization going back that far. This is 1991, 1992, 1993, and something that I'm personally very excited about now is that we now have the site in Turkey, Gebekli Tepe, which is incredibly sophisticated and very well dated independently of me, independent methods of dating back to the end of the last ice age. Um, and it was... Uh, absolutely purposefully buried in 8,000 B.C., 10,000 years ago. And I think it was buried in part by the people that built it. They spent an incredible amount of time burying it purposefully, and I think this is exactly what you would do to try to do your best to salvage it, to save it from the catastrophes I was talking about earlier. Um, so I think we've got now very strong cooperating evidence, which has only come out in the last few years, uh, absolutely supporting, you know, my contention, the evidence I've been putting together for the last 20-some years. So I think this is a very, very exciting time. I also want to mention one other thing, if I could. Easter Island, everyone knows about Easter Island with the big moai, the big heads, that type of thing something that is um, has remained incredibly mysterious is the Easter Island script that's known as the Rongo Rongo script and something that I've been working on with my wife Catherine Ulysses and she actually pointed this out first is that you start putting all this together I mentioned the petroglyphs that Dr. Perot has talked about, has been studying, that seemed to be recording what was happening in the sky at that very early age. You look at the Rongo-Rongo script, they're the same forms. They're the same structures. They seem to be indicating the same thing. So again, you know, another line of independent evidence that we're seeing this consistency around the world, it seems to be tying in with the same story. Incredible. Which is exactly what you expect with science, you know, that there is a consistent story, there is consistent evidence from different lines of, um, uh, you know, different lines of inquiry that are pointing to the same thing. I mean, of course, there's no um, 
there was no technology that survived um, uh, from from that those periods because that that would have been wiped out and uh, would never. Yeah, exactly. See, this is another thing, and it, and I I don't want people to think it's uh, it's a dismissal, but you know, frankly, when we're talking at the level of catastrophe, if I could use that term that we're talking about, it would have destroyed, it would have wiped out quite a bit. Um, and again, you know, I'm a geologist, and I'm used to, I guess, if we want to put it this way, that not everything survives. A lot of things are lost. Uh, I go back to my early training. I'm, I'm trained as part, and I've done a lot of work in paleontology, the study of fossils. You know, most species that ever existed on Earth, there is absolutely no record of them. Um, you know, they, they came and they went, and there's no record of them. You think about dinosaurs. Everyone knows about dinosaurs now. You'd think, you'd think from children's books that dinosaur fossils are all over the place, but they're not. There's certain pockets of them that we've now recognized, but really in a modern sense, dinosaurs were not recognized for what they are until the 1830s. Before then, people didn't even see them. They're so few and far between. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... Um you know, I, I wonder why an advanced civilization, even if they were just as advanced as what we are now, would have built the pyramids initially. I think, um, well, the, the, this is a this is a good question. Exactly why the pyramids were built, um, what they were built for. There's some evidence, I believe, with the Great Pyramid that at one point it was built. When I say some evidence, I actually think quite strong evidence that it was built for astronomical purposes or what we might call astronomical, astrological purposes. When you look at the alignments of the pyramids and the Great Pyramid in particular, it is just absolutely incredible. People may realize this, but I'll say it. The Great Pyramid is aligned to true north, the true cardinal points, with a precision that could not be duplicated until the late 19th, early 20th century. Until then, people could not even figure out how accurately the Great Pyramid was aligned. The shafts of the Great Pyramid have this perfect north-south alignment, yet they're slightly offset from the center. Why do you do this without going into great detail? You do that in part if you're making very, very precise astronomical observations of um, the rising and setting of stars, of looking at the night sky, plotting where things are. So I think one aspect of it at least the Great Pyramid, was for astronomical purposes, which, if you think about it, is a fairly sophisticated thing. I mean, what's one of the, not that I'm biased, but, you know, one of the um, uh, foremost uh, cutting-edge sciences to this day is astronomy and making precise astronomical observations. Of course, and of course it was just a, a different way of doing it, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, a lot of these things, there's, there's, this is something else that I think is very important lesson when you talk about the big picture, the big lessons of why should we care. 
uh, there are different ways of doing things. And I think that sometimes we in our society, in our culture, we get caught up that, well, if it's not our way, it's no way, you know. Well, if, if absolutely, If it's not yeah. done the way we do it, it must be, quote, primitive. Well, we'll, we'll, c- we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. That's an important question. But just very briefly, uh, if we can be brief about such a subject, um, yeah. I want to talk, talk about the Hall of Records. Now, uh, this was... A, this. These records were supposedly um, supposed to, um, you know, decipher the origins of mankind and what the uh, original civilization was like on Earth. Um, and these were apparently, or are apparently, uh, located under the paw of the Sphinx. So uh, just tell me a, b- a little bit about your uh, work into this. Oh, yeah, sure. The Hall of Records, um, people like Edgar Casey, the great American psychic, the late great, of course he's now been deceased for some decades, he had predicted that around the Sphinx, depending on how you read the readings, his readings, his his, uh, psychic readings, uh, around the Sphinx or under the paw of the Sphinx, under the left paw of the Sphinx particularly, that there would be a chamber with the Hall of Records. Okay, I have to say... Back in the early 1990s, I knew who Edgar Casey was, and that was it. I knew nothing about his uh, predictions. I knew nothing about his comments on the Hall of Records. So I'm studying the Sphinx. Among other things, as part of our studies of the Sphinx, I worked with a very good Houston, at the time he was out of Houston, geophysicist Thomas DeBecky. We did seismic, low-level low-energy seismic studies around the Sphinx because I wanted to look at subsurface weathering rates around the Sphinx. That's part of how I was able to ultimately have corroborative evidence, supporting evidence for my dating of the Sphinx, and we did some very successful studies. We were not looking for hidden chambers or hidden buried treasure, that type of thing, but we found, lo and behold, unexpectedly, this chamber this cavity under the left paw of the Sphinx. And when I say left paw, if you think of yourself as the Sphinx, it's left paw, the right side when you're facing the Sphinx. And, I mean, okay, so this was very interesting to me. Not, It really wasn't that big a deal to me. It wasn't my primary focus. The next thing I know, I talk about this. I publish a, We published a paper on it in a journal called Geoarchaeology, Next thing I know, I'm getting phone calls in my office from the ARE, Association for Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey Foundation, and they're filling me in completely about how Edgar Casey had predicted this. He had said the Sphinx and the pyramids were older and all of that type of thing. And, you know, what can I say? We found it. He said it was there. Do I know for certain it's the Hall of Records? No, I don't so, know. That. So, 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 where there's a chamber under there? Yeah, I mean, will they ever uh, be, be allowed to look into this and excavate? Do you think? I am hoping that someday we can get into it to excavate it to at least um, drill into it. Now, I want to make a comment there. First off, I was not ever allowed to go further with the studies under the old regime. People know that you know things have changed in Egypt. I don't know what the situation is with um, Dr. Zahi Hawass. Zahi Hawass. Zahi Hawass was long in charge of everything that had to do with anything that was ancient in Egypt. I don't know what the status is now. 
um, it's all very unclear to me. You know what? Who's really in charge of what? Well, I mean, they've uh, ju- they've just resi- resigned their government again, haven't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So things continue to be in turmoil in Egypt from a political point of view. And unfortunately, politics play a lot into this, modern politics, whether it's the politics of science, the politics of government, the politics of power. Uh, you just don't know what it, what it, what it makes uh, you think. You know how to deal with this. But, it, but yeah. I'd like to get in there. It makes you think, doesn't it, that if anyone in power takes any of this with even a light pinch of salt, right, that they yeah. would would be looking themselves and, and, and maybe have done their own research into it as well. Yes, and there continue to be rumors about that. I just don't know how true they are. It's very difficult to say. I wanted to say that at one point Zahi Hawass drilled under the left paw, and I even found at one point a YouTube of this, and they drilled and they claimed that they just went through solid rock and there's no chamber there. They never mentioned me by name, which is fine with me, but they wanted to dismiss, quote-unquote, that there was any chamber there. When I watched that YouTube, I could see from the angle they were drilling, they were drilling at the wrong wrong angle to hit it. And if they'd read my paper, which I'm sure they have, they would have known that. So I think it was just, you know, they were just doing that um, to discredit, you know, and who knows if they actually drilled into it or not. There's two issues here, a couple of issues here. One is we do have a real problem with rising water table in front of the Sphinx at the Sphinx because Cairo is incredibly overpopulated. This is meant, without going into great detail, that the water table's rising, the uh, hydrogeology is not the same as it was in ancient times. That chamber is probably flooded or on the verge of being flooded, probably flooded. So I think time is of the essence to get into it to figure out what's going on with it. The second thing is lots of people have asked me, well, how did they get into that chamber originally? There seems to be no entrance to the chamber that we can see now around the Sphinx. What we found seismically is that under the sand east of the Sphinx Temple, which sits just east of the Sphinx, under what seemed like flat sand, there's essentially a huge cliff face. If you removed all the sand, and I suspect that this is my instinct, that there may be an entrance into the chamber from that cliff face. But it, but it so makes... It if makes that cliff face could be excavated, we may in fact find the, the entrance to it. It makes, it makes no sense, does it, why, why before, you know, previously before the uh, upheaval in the government, why they would not have uh, you know, been looking into um, um, you know, some of the research. No, actually, into I, 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 I would disagree. I think it makes a lot of sense if you try to put it in... Put yourself into their mindset, their mindset being a classical Egyptological point of view, very conservative. I found that Egyptologists tend to be very conservative. Why would they want to open up cans of worms by finding literally a hall of records that might suggest that there was a much more advanced civilization much earlier in time? I think, in fact, they'd want to cover that up the best they could if there's even the remote chance such a thing would exist so this is all on my website if can i mention the website please do yeah www my name all one word robert shock and it's spelled r-o-b-e-r-t robert s-c-h-o-c-h dot com uh, www robert shock and that's s-c-h for shock 
S-C-H-O-C-H for shock.com, robertshock.com. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. To find out more information on Dr. Robert Shock, go to my website, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Dr. Shock under past guests. Now, don't forget you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get the latest updates on the shows, and that we have a TV show that goes out every Friday from 6pm on Sky 201 and FreeSat 403. So until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>